Otherwise, we're going to turn in our Bibles in just one moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, please. Hang out in 1 Corinthians 3. We're in Jesus and the stewardship of glory. Our little second shot at thinking about this and how what he says to his father parlays to us. Jesus and the stewardship of glory. This is a study on biblical stewardship or we call it biblical ownership because we're trying to talk to the culture we're living in. What the Bible says about taking responsibility. What categorically are our actual responsibilities? The bestseller self-help or business insight book, uh, uh, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and his co-writer, uh, is a really neat book because it tells a bunch of sea stories. It's a couple of Navy SEALs that work together in the Operation Iraqi Freedom War especially, and um, uh, they, they talk about missions they did in little caveats, little war stories to bring out the various points that they make about how to succeed in business, how to do well in life with discipline, with the things that you need to take care of. The reason I'm using this illustration as an opening because the sequel book to this corrects some of the things they perceive as errors in their first book. And it's a very interesting study. <laughs> it's called the, uh, it's, it's the, um, it's like the it's not the dynamics of leadership, but it's, 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 a word, it's, a, it's a book with that kind of title. And it's about how, you, does somebody know? The yeah, the dichotomy. That's right, the dichotomy. And it's, and it's, it's a study in, um, have, you, have you read that? Yeah. Oh, very cool. It's a study in how you have to own, but you have to delegate. You have to take responsibility, but you also have to let people take responsibility. And, and, and that tension between I am in charge of this project, so I have to make sure it gets done. Meanwhile, I have people that are working under me in this project, and they have to do their job. And so am I worried about the end state? Am I worried about the process to get to the end state? And the answer is yes, and it's hard. It's the tough thing, one of the great tough things about leadership. The reason I think dynamics in this is because there's so many moving pieces. And the correction that these guys are saying they made, it's, it's not that they got anything wrong in the first book, but people took it wrong. They, they misunderstood. In extreme ownership, the idea is that even though I didn't do the thing that happened, it happened under my watch and I'm in charge. So I take ownership of the thing in order to, to make it work, to make it better. Now, in the military, um, as in any organization of fallen, broken, sinful humans, when something goes wrong, something has to happen. Do you know what has to happen? Heads have to roll. Someone has to pay for the, the, the grievance. It's the, I don't know, it's this inherent sense we've got in terms of some sort of cosmic justice that if, if something goes wrong, someone's getting, getting fired. And, and we have, because otherwise, the, the person that didn't fire is wrong and it's his fault and he gets fired. And so we have to, we have to, uh, triage, we have to put a tourniquet somewhere. So I'm not going to put it up here. I'll put it down here. And that way we stop the bleeding down here. That's the idea is that you're, you're, um, 
you're going to save yourself by, uh, by killing someone else. And, and so um, that's not what extreme ownership is about. They're just saying that if something goes wrong in, in your organization and you're in charge at whatever level, you need to address it. You need to own that. And the, the simple um, Jocko Willink way of saying it is, whose fault is it? Right? Whose fault is that? And, well, uh, he says, it's my fault. I'm the leader. It's my fault. Well, it, what do you mean by fault is the, the question. And it's just a helpful way to help people think that like the, our first thing we did after the fall was we hid from God. The second thing we did when God pulled us out of the bushes is said, did you do it? And then we said, well, she did it. We shifted to somebody else and we didn't own what we need to own. It's a very intensely biblical notion that when you're culpable, own it. That's what, what you're responsible for. And if you're in charge of something, then you need to address it so that you can re recover and restore. And the ultimate point of extreme ownership by Jocko Wellink is that um, if something's wrong, you need to take the necessary responsibility to fix it because things go wrong. And so you don't go plan to fail and say, well, I'll fix it later. You do your best, but then when things don't go well, you, you have to address it and you have to take necessary ownership. But you can't steal the delegated responsibilities from, from someone below you so that you're owning it is the, the next level, the dichotomy thing. All right, all that thinking. If you have a job and it's on you to make sure it happens, but it includes the volition of other people below you that they have to do what you're asking them to do so that the entire thing happens, I hope you can see how this is an illustration of something much bigger than whether you get, get along in business or get your sales quotas or if your team uh, succeeds on the objective um, uh, in the attack. And, and you're delegated with authority and somebody else below you has to carry out the missions you give them so that your ultimate mission is accomplished. Personal beings with volition, the capacity to choose, delegated with responsibility from a higher authority with multiple levels of delegation. God the Father sent the Son to do a mission. The Son called the disciples and he, he parlayed portions of the mission to them and that has passed on down to us. And so it's an illustration. I hope you can understand. It's an illustration. Now the difference, the way the illustration breaks down is that God is not at fault for wickedness, for sin, for that which is in failure. But you and I, when we are guilty of sin, failure, whatever, we are. And we aren't carving out whatever projects we want. God has clearly given us a mission that is explicit in the Bible. And the lie that you were told in America in uh, probably elementary school with someone trying to motivate you to run after your goals and your dreams, the lie is that you can go and do whatever you want to do with your life. Now, in a sense, that's true. You can. You can go do whatever you want to do with your life. But you can't do that and ignore God and get it right. You can fail all you want, but you don't have to. What I'm saying is what we need to do is what God 
wants us to do. He's got a mission for us. He has delegated various aspects of it to us, and he wants us to accomplish it. And owning that biblical ownership is figuring out who God is, and so who am I? What has God said he wants from me, and in what power will I do it? That is biblical ownership or responsibility of what has been delegated to us. And you can't do anything that pleases God without abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus said in John chapter 15, Abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Jesus thinks that if you're not abiding in him, whatever you're bearing isn't fruit. Whatever you're doing is not him working through you. It isn't the fruit of the Spirit if we're walking separate from the Spirit, if we're walking after the flesh. And so... To bring it to the Bible, and the, the self-help stuff is fine. The, the leadership lessons learned, these are, these are good things, all right? Uh, the Apostle Paul says that physical exercise is good for a little. It has its value. But understanding that your life has a, a design, it has a purpose, it has an intended outcome, that one who's far more loving of you than you are of yourself has incorporated into history for you. But it's your choice to listen to him. It's your choice to get on board with what he said. It's your choice to be about the work, to be about the mission. Let me illustrate that, please. Uh, I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians. You can hold that place. I want to illustrate what I'm saying in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12. Where would I find Hebrews 12? I would go to about right there in my Bible. It's almost at the end. We're almost to the maps. Hebrews 12. Very accessible passage. Very accessible passage about Jesus being our example. See, he perfectly owned what was delegated to him. He perfectly executed. And so I like the Navy SEALs as illustrations of conduct of leadership and duty because they're good. They're, they're the elite of action in our, in our military forces and therefore in our culture. And I love them, but Jesus is a much better example even than they are. And so listen to your leaders, listen to your exemplars. And Jesus is the ultimate one in, John, in Hebrews 12. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, now notice the witnesses are people that you're watching. And so you can learn from watching their example. That's the chapter 11 Old Testament saints that believed. Their faith is exemplary. We have a cloud of witnesses in chapter 11 surrounding us. Let us. Let us. Hebrews is the, is the epistle of lettuce. It is the epistle of the hortatory subjunctive. And the hortatory subjunctive is a grammatical feature inherent in first century Greek that you need to know. I don't think that I need to know and you don't. I think you need to know. What I'm saying is the word let us defines, describes, characterizes how the writer of Hebrews issues commands. He includes himself in the instructions. Almost all the commands in Hebrews are stated this way. They're in the subjunctive mood. They're in the first person plural. It's us, we, it's let us. It's follow me, but here we go together. It is not you go do, it is let us go do. The let us commands all through the, the epistle of the Hebrews. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer of Hebrews says there's a race. Anybody know the Greek word for race? You'll remember it, some of you, it's agona. Where you get the word agony. I don't know how many steps in it is of the sprint that it becomes agony for me, but I'll tell you what, it's a lot fewer than it used to be. Hurts. If you push yourself, whatever level of fitness you have, if you push yourself in a foot race, that hurts. It hurts and it's painful. And if you work at it, it gets where it's painful in a good way or less painful in a bad way and you can really lean in. But um, whatever level your conditioning is, this is going to hurt. It's not sitting around. It's running a race. And he says, let us. It's an invitation to join him in a very strong way of saying his volition, his desire for those listening. He's saying, let's do this. Okay, children, let's go clean our room. This does not mean uh, a suggestion to clean your room. It's a command, but it's a way. It's, a, it's an idiomatic way in, in Greek of saying the, the instruction. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Now, how will you do it? He doesn't leave you to just say, oh, no, agony. I'm going to run, and I guess I just better get to running. He tells you how in verse 2. My Bible says fixing our eyes upon Jesus. The word fixing is actually looking away. Fixing, does, that's not really a great translation. Looking away to Jesus is the, the Greek word. And it, it, it is the means by which you'll run the race with endurance is by looking at Jesus. By looking away from anything else and only to Jesus. That's what the Greek is saying. By looking away to Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured. Did you hear the endurance? Run the race with endurance by looking at Jesus and who he is, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How did he endure? Well, he was looking at what was in front of him. You look away to Jesus, he looked away to what was in front of him and what was in front of him. The joy that was set before him and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy is what we read about last time in John 17. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. How do you get, how do you get on, the, on the path? How do you run this race? You look at Jesus. You watch his pattern and you emulate it. He went through it. You go through it. And what, what motivated him through the suffering? What motivated him? It wasn't the suffering. It wasn't masochistic. Oh, this hurts. Yay. It was, look at what's coming. It's a future focus. We Christians look up and out, not down. And what we're going through, we look at what God has said he's going to bring us to. For consider him, in verse 3, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I love this command. I've written about it. I love this instruction. It's a lettuce command. He includes himself. I think that's super, uh, that's really good leadership. The writer of Hebrews not only wants you to do this, but he needs to do it himself. And I think all of the injunctions in the New Testament uh, by believers, the entire New Testament was written by Christians. Nothing was written by Jesus. 
the object of our faith, it was all written by those who had believed in Christ, they all have to do the same thing. We're all in the same boat in that sense. We have to run with endurance the race that's set before us. So Jesus is our exemplar. He asked the Father to give him glory so that he would have something to give to the Father. Remember that concept of reciprocation? And here we are asking for what is our responsibility? What do I own? What has God entrusted to me? And what am I responsible for? And we've, we've talked about the various categories. But the way you'll do it is by recourse to Jesus as your example. All right, Jesus was given this stewardship of glory, meaning he was delegated something that the Father had given him. And then he gave that delegation back to the Father. And then the Father would glorify him. And then he would bring it back to the Father. Remember that idea, that kind of picture that you're playing pitch with your dad in the backyard? That's, that's what's happening. You gave them to me, I gave them back to you. And that's what John 17, 3 is about. This is eternal life. To know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He means that I gave the ones you gave to me, I gave them back to you because they now know you. And so it's this reciprocation. That's the way to think about every aspect of our lives as it has been delegated down to us. What in my life doesn't fit in that idea? My sex, whether I'm a man or a woman, that's a thing God did. That's a thing God did. As Christians, we should really be comfortable with this idea. Now we should ask God, what does that mean? And what are the responsibilities inherent in that delegation? Well, that would imply that God would decide and we wouldn't. He would know what the right answer was and we would have to get with that. That's how it is. We're just his creatures. We're just his kids. We're not, the, we're not God. And so the, the impulse to, to, to diminish the differences between the sexes, the roles that God has established for the sexes, the, that is the, that's the seed and the fruit is now the transgender moment where the kids are wondering if they have options about what they'll do with their sexuality or their sex. I'm studiously avoiding the grammatical word gender. Now, everything that Jesus had was given to him by the Father in terms of his mission, in terms of his responsibility. And in John 17, he asked the Father for glory so that he will be able to glorify the Father. From that model, from that example, from that illustration, everything we're struggling with in life, every challenge that we're facing, every blessing, everything that we think it must be some sort of blessing in disguise because it hurts, every aspect of our lives can be seen in this way. How is this about God? And how is it something that I can relate back to him with? And so I think it's really valuable to go, and now let's go to 1 Corinthians 3 and talk about glory that's coming to us. Jesus and the stewardship of glory takes you right to the Apostle Paul and his concerns with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Are you aware, biblical students, of God's plan for your life in terms of glory? Are you aware of what he wants to do with you? That his mission, his plan, his purpose carries a desired outcome? That Jesus went through the cross for the joy that was set before him and endured the shame? Did you know you, there's something set in front of you that God wants to do with you? And we read about it, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, what's going on in the context? We always have to do the context thing for me to make my little point 
theologically. This is the rewards passage of gold, silver, precious stones. We all want to appropriate that to ourselves because it resonates. I want gold, silver, and precious stones. I want to have, if there is coming a fire to test my works, I want it to go well for me. And there is coming a fire to test your works. So what's going on in the passage? Well, we're, it's the first little section after Paul's uh, discussion of spiritual versus carnal versus fleshly. Uh, carnal versus, um, versus soulish. The three types of people he describes. That you've got believers and unbelievers, and then you have in believers some walking by the Spirit and some walking after the flesh that look like unbelievers. And he tells the Corinthians that because they're dividing over who's the pastor, over who is the leader that they're following, that they're acting like unbelievers. They haven't understood that any human that teaches you is just coming from Christ. It's really all about him. It's not about these humans that are teaching you. And you can't do this sinful, carnal, fleshly division over personalities. The personality cult monster gets slain in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 3, verse 1, I, brethren, could not speak to you, Christians. How do I know they're Christians? Because Paul says, I'm only talking to saints. Those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's only talking to believers in 1 Corinthians, which is really tough for some of you because they're such rapscallions. They're so carnal. They don't look like believers. They don't act like believers. The walk like a duck principle doesn't work for the Corinthians. You know what the longest epistle by number of words in the Bible is? 1 Corinthians. It's a whipping. Every page is another whipping. That's Southern for spanking. That's an activity they do down south when children need to be corrected. Every, he's correcting these wayward carnal Corinthians every different topic. You get chapter 6, they're suing each other. Well, before they're suing each other, they're visiting the temple of Aphrodite. How could a Christian do such a thing? Well, ask Paul in the first century. It's cultural. They're, they're worldly. They think like the world around them. They haven't come to shore on what the Christian life is about. And that's one of the great things about 1 Corinthians is if we'll pay attention, we'll learn what it's about. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, characterized by the Holy Spirit, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So walking after your sinful nature, like an unbeliever, is to walk as a baby. Because you don't know, you're not thinking, you're not cognizant of the, the responsibilities God's given you or the power he's given you. So you're just functioning like an unbeliever, or which is to function like an infant in Christ. Babies in Christ, notice babies in Christ don't know anything yet. And that's the difference. They haven't grown enough yet to understand. And so this idea right there, verse 1 of chapter 3, this idea that if I trust in Christ, then I'm different. I'm there. I've, I've believed in Jesus. And all of a sudden, spiritual maturity. That's not what Paul describes. And I figure he knows. I'm, of course he knows. All right. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food for you not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able to drink, to, to eat solid food. So no, no steakhouse for you. No good solid food. For you are still carnal. For since, that's 
Sarkikos, like the flesh, functioning under your sin nature. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not carnal? Are you not walking like unbelievers, like mere men? There's no work of the Spirit in how you're treating one another. As you rage and fight over this question of leadership. For when you sa- one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not acting like unbelievers? I'm paraphrasing. Are you not mere men? When you're dividing over these legitimate persons that God has sent to legitimately teach you, and you're doing something illegitimate with that gift, that blessing God's given you, are you not acting like unbelievers? And so Paul is then going to launch from that problem into what we're after, where these guys are under evaluation by the Lord for the works that they do. It's all about the Lord, and it's all about what, what, whether we get on board with what he is doing. And the Corinthians need to learn that so that they don't miss out as well. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Isn't that beautiful? Servants through whom you believed. Well, when I first heard the gospel and trusted in Christ, Paul was preaching. When I first heard the gospel and trusted in Christ, you know, I heard Paul say it, but I didn't really trust in him. I didn't understand it. But then Apollos came and it clicked. That happens. That happens a lot. You'll hear the same thing again and again, and then some guest speaker will come, and you'll be like, oh, now I understand. It's a common experience right here in 1 Corinthians. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, the Lord set you up to hear the gospel through these fallen, broken vessels. These guys, they're all crackpots. You know, you had to keep a cracked pot filled. If you have a crack in your, in your vase, in your pot, you have to keep it under the tap. That's how we are. They're sinful, broken humans that have Christ as their Savior. They have the Holy Spirit working in them. They have the Word of God saturating them so they're useful to God as they walk by the Spirit. He then says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Life verse for anybody that wants to be about God's mission. I planted, meaning in the process of raising crops here in the illustration, I was the one that poked a hole in the ground and put a seed and covered it up or however else you're actually supposed to do it. I planted. Apollos watered. If the planter does his job and then there's no water, the plant doesn't grow. You have to have a team effort. Apollos watered. But in both cases, in all cases, in every instance, God was causing the growth. I have a pastor friend. We lament from time to time about being pastors with one another. We commiserate about how very ineffectual we in ourselves truly are in the ministry of the gospel. It's a wonderful thing to know this. You need to know this. I'll be an exemplar for you about this because I think it's exemplary. We really, all we carry is a little kid's lunch. We've got a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. That's all we have. And it's food, but it's food for one. And it's effective, but it's effective in a limited basis. You with me? But in the hand of Jesus, he can make it effective. I can do what I can do. But God can actually do something of real value. God is the one working. God is where if we're doing, if you and I are successful in affecting any change in anyone's life, it's because God did it. And he might have used us, but he did it. God was causing the growth. You with me? It's God's work. And that's so helpful. See, I'm not the coach. I'm not the smart guy on the sidelines covering my mouth, looking at the playbook and saying, no, we're going to run this play. I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy that looks you square in the face, young man, and says, 
I am going to tell you how it is. I'm going to fix you. I've seen that effort, that approach of pastoral ministry before. Have you ever seen it? Not for me. I've tried not to be that way. Okay, I've done it once or twice. (laughs) See, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what all the many dynamics of all the things going on in your life, where all that is, I don't know. But God knows, and I know he knows. And his word, every word of his word is sufficient and successful to bring you more and more to him. And I know that's how it works. It's like when you serve someone a meal. Do I understand the digestive process and its intricate detail about how this food is going to affect you? I don't. I know a few things. If there's citrus, I think there's vitamin C in it. That's probably good for your immune system, I think, right? But I'm not thinking about all the various intricate details of the digestive process if I serve someone a meal. I'm thinking, and we've planned to make nutritious food, but how that all gets worked in the system, that's a God thing. It ultimately really is. And so what I'm trying to say is that um, you really can't accomplish anything that pleases God unless God is actually doing it through you. How will you do that? Well, you'll abide in Christ and he'll bear fruit in you. And the power in which he does that is God, the Holy Spirit. So verse seven, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God. He's everything who causes the growth. The one who plants, oh, but that was the apostle Paul. I want to hear a sermon by the apostle Paul. I want to hear how he did it. I want to hear what he said at Mars Hill that, that Luke narrates and, and, uh, and summarizes. I want to hear. I want to be there. I want to hear the way his voice sounds. The theory that Paul is, um, see, he's offensive to the Corinthians. They're used to the town, their Greek culture. They're used to the town orator coming out and putting out the, the, the information in flowing silvery tones so that whatever you're arguing for, you could sell snowballs to the Eskimos, that kind of thing. It's whatever the town uh, rulers have decided, the orator comes out and sells it. And they're used to that, and, and it's called rhetoric, and you can convince people with emotional appeals and various gimmicks and, tra- and trappings and stuff. Paul doesn't do any of that stuff. I would love to hear how Paul preached. They think that maybe he was, uh, his voice was kind of weak or, or offensive in its sound. Maybe it had a high voice. Maybe he was high-pitched in how he talked. And you had to listen through that tendency to talk nasally in a high-pitched voice. Some people have a voice like that. And sometimes they make excellent tenors. If you get them to sing, right? Now, Jack, Jack doesn't sound like that when he teaches, but he's, he's a high tenor. We, we don't know why Paul says, basically, to the Corinthians, I know that you find me repulsive. But it was something after the flesh like that, and that's a lot of the argument in 2 Corinthians uh, to these carnal believers that are still babies. But my point is not to, to knock Paul. Paul was wonderfully used by God, and he's uses, God used him in my life every single day. Every day, this guy that I want to hear what he sounds like, I will in heaven, um, is effective in my life because God is using his word uh, that he inspired Paul to, to, to write. But it's not, it's not the one who plants or the one who waters, but God causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. What does that mean? 
Paul started the gospel there. He started the mission, and then Paulus came behind and, and reinforced it and supported it and advanced it when Paul had left. They're one. How are they one? Are they the same guy? No. They're both functionaries being used by God in God's work. In other words, there's nobody that gets a poster. Nobody gets to be the signature. This is mine, and I'm it. it no. It's all Christ. We're his letter. It's all about him. It always is all about him. And so Paul's wonderful for showing us that. But the one who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. They're the same in that they're functionaries. They're different in that they're different persons. God's got this one mission we're doing, and it doesn't matter who gets the credit because it all goes to Jesus. It's all his work through us. But they're different because they're persons with spiritual lives, volitions, capacities to make choices, responsibilities, therefore delegated from God, with an evaluation that each Paul and Apollos will both be evaluated for their own work before the Lord. So when you look at them as recipients of their ministry, you're supposed to see that they're, they're, they're just one. They're just coming to us with the word of God, and it's about Jesus. But what they're doing before the Lord is separate. It's what God sees is that Paul is doing his work, or Paul does his work, and they get judged and stand on their own work. In other words, you can't piggyback on someone else's effort before the Lord. You can't say, well... I go to X church and that pastor teaches the word, so we're good. No, that pastor teaches the word to equip you to do the work that the word calls you to do. And then you stand or fall before God on your performance is where he's headed. And that's the judgment seat of Christ passage that we're coming to. He who plants, he who waters are one. But each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You didn't think that God is the kind of, uh, of boss that tells you what he wants you to do and then doesn't give you a recompense for it, were you? You, you didn't think that, really, did you? Did you think that? Now, God has, in his plan, cause and effect. Part of the cause is he delegates to us. The effect is what do we do with that? That becomes its own cause. Our choices bring an effect from God's recompense. And he has something that he wants to do with you. And it's a really neat system. It's a perfect system that we'll read as we continue. We're God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building. Now, verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder switching from planting and growing crops in the field to building a house, build a construction project, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. Who is Paul? He laid the foundation. Who's building on it? Apollos. There, it's a construction project. Did you know it takes more than one person to build a house? Turns out. Now, I've seen those videos, those guys out in the woods with a saw and a, and a, a, a knife, and they build a house. But don't, that, the point is that this construction project's going a little faster. Okay. I laid a foundation, another's building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So if you're worried about foundation materials, it better be Christ. You can't found it on, um, we're talking the illustration of, uh, of leadership, uh, leadership guru literature. That's not the foundation. 
Sound leadership practices, not the foundation. I know of a, of a famous megachurch pastor that does a lot of leadership seminars and studiously avoids the name of Jesus as he tells the leadership principles that he's learned from Jesus. And um, I wonder about that approach. He's trying to do evangelism by being cool and being, you know, helping out and, and, and helping people out so that then maybe they'll say, well, what are you about? And then he can say, okay, I'm really about Jesus. Um, but the foundation isn't the leadership stuff. The foundation is Christ because that's really what you have to do. That's the starting point for everything. There is no construction project that, that God is interested in that isn't starting with Christ. So you got to be careful. And then Paul expands this to everybody because it's a project that we're all part of. The father commended to the son. The son is delegated to his disciples. The disciples became the apostles. And he told those apostles, go make more disciples. So disciples make disciples, and disciples teach. And here's what we do. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. That is a mouthful, but you have to follow Paul in his illustration. What he's talking about is his ministry that Apollos is in, building in the Corinthians, is a construction project with a foundation that is Christ, and then Apollos is building on that, that foundation. And you have to be careful about what you build with because the, the building materials are going to come under pressure. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. The gold and silver and precious stones can weather the fire. They can, they can survive through uh, a test of fire. But the wood, hay, and straw, that's kindling. That cannot. If any man's work, which he's built on it, let's see. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, if I use the wrong building materials and excellent craftsmanship, I still lose. Notice that the other is, is interesting. He doesn't say it's about the nature of your craftsmanship. He doesn't, it's not your rhetorical skill. It's not your flourish. It's not how clever you are telling stories. It's the materials you use to build. You've, your foundation is Christ. Well, what else will you build with? It's going to be God's word. It's the things of God. It's your, it's your walk by the spirit that he's talking about. If any man's, let's see, if any man's work which he has built on that foundation remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Sins die brows, I call it. So you're close enough to the fire that that, you know, when the, when the combustible materials combust, that adds apparently some heat to the arrangement. You get a little, little singe. So as through fire. Think of Tom and Jerry after one of their many explosions, what's left. He's still there, but he's lost something. If any man's work is burnt, okay, Tom and Jerry was a cartoon back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, anyway. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he, he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Now, you might have read through this in a cursory way or heard message on this, and, and um, you, you may want to say, Pastor, this is just about spiritual rewards, eternal rewards. This is just the rewards passage, and, and uh, you're, you're, you're bringing this mission stuff into it. I'm not. The only occasion for Paul to talk about the blasting furnace and the evaluation of our works 
is the ministry of the gospel that is the building project Paul and Apollos are working on. In other words, if you want to apply 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, and its idea about wood, hay, and straw, and gold, silver, precious stones, if you want to apply that to your life, you have to do it in the context in which Paul is discussing it. It's the mission of the gospel. And you need to be evaluating the labor and the materials you're using in that project because it's going to be evaluated. Are you building with God's materials? That's, that's the challenge. Now, some of you are like, I didn't, I didn't even know we were running a race. I heard this pistol sound and um, people started running and uh, I looked down, I'm in running gear and a sh- I got a number. I-, I didn't ask to run a race. Well, Hebrews chapter 12 doesn't say run the race that you've elected to run. It says the, run, the race is set before you. <laughs> Guess what, buddy? You're running. Better go. That distant memory of the starter pistol, I guess I better run. Hey, it's not too late. Well, I've done so much living, it doesn't really matter how I run. No, run the race, get after it. And you didn't choose it. Well, same thing here. I didn't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to have a hearty breakfast because I got to go to the building project. Or in my case, don't eat breakfast because I'll be lethargic. I need to be sharp. So I'll eat something later, but let's get to work. That idea, and that's not nutritional advice. That's just how my my brain works. Um, I don't want to go build. I'm not a builder. Apparently, the gold, silver, precious stone stuff is for people that are. You want to have your works tested. Now, I I suspect that there's a lot of believers who've squandered the most wonderful delegation of power and and, uh, responsibility ever given, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit to the heart of every believer in Jesus in this age, that you have been equipped with omnipotence from God to do the work, not to do anything you want, but to do the work God has called you to do. You've been given a spiritual gift. You've been given the the word of God, which helps you grow so that you can function maturely in all of these things. And so are you a builder or not? Are you part of the project or not? I want to be. I want to be part of that work. I don't want to waste the opportunity. Since we've been all pop culture today, um, I want to borrow from Hamilton, of course. The great uh, hit song from the musical Hamilton is the first song. It's the first idea, the summary of his life is, I don't want to waste my shot. Well, what is your shot? Founding a country? Building a city? Carving out a legacy where people put you on their currency? Well, that's valuable, isn't it? It's getting less and less valuable every day. <laughs> Put my face on something more valuable, right? What is your shot? It's, it's to join Paul in the construction project, to build the body of Christ with the right materials. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we dedicate the closing moments this morning to anyone who may be in the hearing my voice that doesn't know Jesus is your Savior. The message I've given for believers from 1 Corinthians on being a steward of what's entrusted to us Uh, is irrelevant without Christ, the foundation. So today's the day, perhaps for you and the hearing my voice, you're catching this message later. This is the day. If you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, there's no time like the present. This is the time. Consider who He is and what He's done for you. Your Creator, recognize that you needed eternal life to have eternity with Him. 
and that our sin was a separation, a barrier from that eternal relationship, and God is going to have to condemn and judge sin. And so rather than condemning us for our sins, God the Father sent His Son to die for our sins on the cross. We sang about it in a little hymn earlier. That is the basis for everything else that Jesus took our sins on Himself on the cross. And the wonderful proclamation of the Apostle Paul and Silas, the Philippian jailer, resonates today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Your faith in Him is the moment of your declaration of righteousness from God because He is pleased to save those who trust in His Son. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Father, we thank You for Your precious Word. And for the challenge to be part of this construction project so that we can join the Lord Jesus in this stewardship of glory with eternal rewards and the eternal privilege of glorifying you with those. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.